Hey, Roxy. Tyler, welcome to the podcast that will change your life. That seems unlikely. Yeah, maybe. But indulge me as we travel back in time to an era of five-step growth strategies, acronyms for everything, and Hawaiian shirts, aka Southern California in 2002. That sounds great. Let me just grab my Oakleys and we'll get started. For Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a midwinter edition. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Tyler Huckabee, and we are calling this series Apocryphon. Are you guys having fun? On every episode of this show, we talk about a popular, influential, or at least lucrative Christian book from the 90s and 2000s. We'll talk about how it shaped American Christianity and our own personal faith journeys, and how it's aged in our current dystopian Christian nationalist hellscape. On this episode, we're talking about Purpose Driven Life. Well, today's book, Purpose Driven Life, is by a Hawaiian shirt-wearing pastor, Rick Warren. This was a 2002 book, and honestly, I really thought it was a lot earlier than that. I could have sworn this book came out in the mid-90s. Like, I feel like I was at home watching my family read it or something. It's very 90s coded. Yeah, it really is. And the messaging seems of a piece with that era, but it clearly landed in the 2000s also and spoke to people because it was massively popular. Definitely the most broadly popular book that we are doing on Mm -hmm. this podcast series. It spent 90, nine zero weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. My gosh. And as of 2020, it had sold more than 50 million copies in 85 languages. That is crazy. Even as somebody who knows that and was around for it, (laughs) I just can't imagine in our current publishing industry ever having anything like that happen again. Those are Harry Potter numbers. Right. Yeah. So what do you remember about this book, Tyler? All I remember is the ubiquity of it. Okay. I believe I was like assigned this in a class as a, here's a Christian book. A class. Well, you know, it was Moody Bible Institute and this was a very big deal. So I think it was just a way for us to be culturally aware. Mm -hmm. I I really could not tell you a single thing about what was in the book, but I do remember that this was just in the water. It was one of those books that was so big that even if you didn't read it, I feel like it was having an impact on you if you were in any way associated with a church. Mm -hmm. Like Rick Warren was everywhere. Everywhere. So you were at a Christian college, a conservative Christian college. Right. Yeah. Lay out for us like where you were in your spiritual journey when this book hit. I was probably like at the very beginning of starting to feel like I didn't really need this type of stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I was kind of done and really to a large degree remain done to this day with Christian nonfiction stuff. Despite this podcast. Despite this podcast, or maybe because of this podcast. You know, I was reading way more fiction. I've always been like when I read, Mm -hmm. I mostly read fiction. Because I was at a Bible college, I was reading a lot of theology and older stuff. And I think I just kind of probably felt like I was too good for this book in a way Mm -hmm. that is not super flattering Mm -hmm. to me and is not actually indicative of the content of the book. But I knew that its impact was enormous. And I remember Mm -hmm. the church I was going to at the time, they were talking about it. My parents' church was talking about it. I think if you were going to church, they were trying to capture the Saddleback shine. Yeah, everybody was. What Saddleback was doing was going 
better than probably numbers wise than any church had ever done in America up to that point. And everyone else was trying to figure out how they were doing it. And Pastor Rick gave them this handbook. I mean, I think when research for this podcast, I read that Saddleback is or was at the time the sixth largest church in America. And that's really saying something when you think about like the mega churches in Texas and stuff. Sure. The Joel Osteens of the world. I mean, same. I was in college when it came out. I think it felt a little soft to me, uh-huh. like a sort of softer version of things I'd already been reading and digesting. Like I'm thinking about like when I like going to the passion concert or whatever and being like, oh, I'm on fire for Jesus. My whole life will be poured out for Jesus, you know? And so this book sort of felt like the more digestible version of that. Yeah. It was kind of like the diet passion conference. Yeah. And it felt very much like my parents thing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I was at this point already reading a lot of like Rob Bell and Don Miller and, and these people who felt a little more like they were pushing the boundaries a little more and mm-hmm. purpose driven life. It seemed very safe. And plus the title was not great. And I remember <laughs> the cover was like very much like very boring. Felt like it was like, the church ladies Bible study, you know, I was like, uh, it's not for me. Which is crazy that we had the same thoughts about this, which are pretty negative. And yet this was a like world historic popular book. Yeah. So what do we know? Clearly nothing. (laughs) And it continues to sell like crazy. So, but actually we will get into this later because I actually found, I had mixed feelings going back and rereading, but I think there's some of it where I was like, okay, like I respect this. So what I will say about Purpose Driven Life is that it insists very persistently that it is not, absolutely is not a self-help book. Okay. Yet, (laughs) it definitely borrows a lot of the language of that genre uh, to make its points that the very best tried and true way to live a good life is to live according to these five distinct principles or purposes. Which that's such a common thing in self-help books Mm -hmm. is we're not like other self-help books. (laughs) I guess what Purpose of Life could say is we're not like other self-help books because we're a Christian and this is ultimately all based in in the Bible and God. And and that's probably not something that Dr. Ruth would say about any of her books. Right. So more on the purposes soon, more on the self-help soon, but first... A pop quiz. Oh, no. Yes, indeed. I really enjoyed testing you. (laughs) I'm not sure I like the on the side of it. (laughs) Well, you studied this in school and you said they never tested you. So now (laughs) I will test you on this book. What if straight A's are not my purpose? Well, don't worry. This little quiz will have no impact on your eternal destiny. All right. Here we go. All right. A purpose-driven life pop quiz. This book had a fairly iconic opening line. Can you remember it? No. <laughs> like not even <laughs> nothing. Okay. <laughs> not even kind of. <laughs> I will give you two hints. Okay. Hint number one, it is four words. Okay. Hint number two, the first word is it's and the last word is you. <laughs> all you got to do is come up with two words. It's not all about you. So close. That is five words. It's not about you. It's not about you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Our producer, Jonathan, texted me during that. I was like, even I know this. 
So that is crazy. Yeah, there you I go. Have no, <laughs> I had crazy. no. I really didn't know. All right. According to Purpose Driven Life, there are five purposes that all humans are made for by God. Can you name two of the five? Mm, I feel like I do remember these a little bit, only because when I was doing research for our Wild at Heart episode last week, I felt like there was a lot of overlap. Mm, more on that later. Oh, okay, good. I didn't mean to steal your mm-hmm. thunder. There's something about like a mission or mm-hmm. it's not a battle. He doesn't use the word battle, but I feel like there is a mission. Mm-hmm. And then I do feel like one big one that was really emphasized and became kind of like a reason for existing with a lot of churches was something about living in community or not being oh. alone, right? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Good. That, I'm going to give you full points on that oh, one. Wow. All right. Um, I'll take it. Yeah. So two of the purposes, the ones that you got, Purpose number two, you were formed for God's family. Okay. Yeah. So that's sure. the community sure. one. And then purpose number five is you were made for a mission. Oh, yeah. The other purposes, number one, you were planned for God's pleasure. Number three, you were created to become like Christ. And number four, you were shaped for serving God. Interesting. There's a lot of overlap. It kind of feels like this meeting could have been an email. <laughs> <laughs> Those all ring a bell, but mm-hmm. they all seem vague enough that nobody could possibly really object to them as long as you're like kind of vaguely Christian even. Yes, which is probably why it sold yeah. so many copies. All right. Question number three. What multiple gold winning Olympian famously had his life changed by this book? Oh, interesting. Multiple gold winning Olympian. Is it an American Olympian? Mm-hmm, it is. Okay. Many, many medals. Is it even the most medals? I think it might be the most. Is it Michael so. Phelps? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he apparently, someone, I can't remember who, some other athlete gave it to him while he was in rehab. Yeah, that's right. And I kind of really remember that him. story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that rings a bell. I mean, look, you can't argue with the results. Look what, <laughs> look what I accomplished. That's right. All right. Last one. And it is a multiple choice. Okay. Here we go. Which of these phrases was not in purpose-driven life? A, at death, you won't leave home. You'll go home. B, many people become bitter rather than better. C, everything that happens to you happens for a reason. Or D, history is his story. <laughs> I hate that all of these sound very plausible. I'm crap shooting <laughs> here, but I'm going to say, what was C? Say C again. Everything that happens to you happens for a reason. Let's go with that. Ding, ding, ding. He did not say that. However, he did say everything that happens to you has spiritual significance. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's actually sounds almost the same as everything that happens happens for a reason, but it's It's a pretty significant difference. It's almost more pressure. I agree with you. Because everything that happens happens for a reason is at least passive. You can just kind of say, well, maybe I'll figure that one out down the road. But spiritual significance could be good or bad, and it could be like it's an obligation. Yes, exactly. It's an obligation. And I think that that might be one of my biggest memories from this book, that sense of pressure or obligation that it seemed to infuse every part of my life with. 
I think that's broader than just this book for me, at least. Mm-hmm. This was a message I was getting from so many other channels. Yes. Just indicative of a very common attitude within evangelicalism at the time. Mm-hmm. Probably still today, for all I know. <laughs> Indeed, for all we would know. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it sound like I'm so... I'm what not is the spiritual even. significance of being post-evangelical? Of not being evangelical anymore. <laughs> <laughs> More on that later. But first, let's talk about why we picked this book. Also, you did great on the pop quiz. Considering I don't remember it, yeah. thank you for all the help, especially in that first one. <laughs> all right. Why did we pick it? We were a little back and forth going with this book for a minute. Mm-hmm. I think the main reason that we did is what we've already said. It sold a gazillion copies. Yeah, it would be weird to not talk about this book, Mm -hmm. given the subject of this podcast. It is still selling a gazillion copies. It will be selling gazillions of copies long after we are all gone. We keep coming at this, but it is hard to overstate the influence that this book had on American Christianity in that era and the way it shaped where we're at today. If you have never heard of this book, and if you've never gone to church, I would say even, your life has probably still been shaped by the impact of this book in one way or another. Mm -hmm. I find it hard to parse with this book, whether it's like the horse or the cart, Uh like did American Christianity of 2002 produce purpose driven life or did purpose driven life shape American Christianity of 2002? The era was so primed for something like this. Mm -hmm. You were at the beginning of like counseling being kind of mainstream. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't have to be a total crackpot to go to counseling. You could just go to get counseling and therapy because you wanted to, you know, you were interested in self-improvement. Right. And then this book dovetails really, really nicely with that fad or that trend of you can be a better self and does it in a language that feels particularly relevant to the 70% of Americans who still consider themselves a minority somehow of Christians and say, well, you know that thing that all your friends are doing that you're hearing about Mm -hmm. on the radio or on CNN or on NPR? Well, here's that for you. Yeah. And it does that very inoffensively in an extremely digestible, easy to read format. As we already said, it was kind of the diet or the light of some of the stuff that maybe we had already read or that you might have gotten from like my utmost for his highest or something like that or experiencing God. Mm -hmm. But this was very much of the seeker sensitive era. And I think like I, I would say Rick Warren and Saddleback are paired with Bill Hybels and Willow Creek in this way where it's like they were the seeker sensitive model of evangelical church at the time, which meant Like anybody could come. It's not super offensive. There's not an altar call every week. Maybe sometimes there was, but it was really meant to not scare people off. Yeah. They had the cafe in the lobby. That was like the first, you know, remember that when that was like weird and rare and cool. Right. And I think that the language, the language was vague enough. It avoided like really theological issues. It avoided anything that would make it niche within Christianity so that it could speak across denominational lines. It could speak to the sort of cultural or nominal Christians. And it did, clearly. Yeah. I think I'm indebted to Mike Cosper at Christianity Today because he talked Mm -hmm. a little bit about Rick Warren and his Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. And he tied the success of Saddleback 
very strongly to the growing suburbs. Right. And that there was this, there's this new, well, maybe not new, but burgeoning demographic of millions of people. And there was this idea that we need to make church for them, that that was mm-hmm. happening in the American church at this time. How do we get to where these people are? Which is, you know, on the one hand, understandable. There's people there that they want to go to church too. But it's also a very lucrative market. It's a very comfortable market. This is a market that could and did really keep your church going. So if you can target them, mm-hmm. you're going to be swimming in cash. And Rick Warren, maybe inadvertently, maybe not, cracked the code. Yeah, it's hard to say with him. Everything that you read in the book would say that that's not what he's trying to do. You know, I think I always respected that he reversed tithes. I do too. You know, he gives away 90% of his income, maybe more at this point, which when you're selling gazillions of books is easier to do. But he was doing it a long time ago, even before he was like wildly successful. Every interaction I've had with him has honestly been really wonderful. Mm -hmm. He comes across like a really, really authentic and kind person. And I think that however much I might doubt the sincerity of other people who sort of latched onto the seeker sensitive movement or see them as a little more opportunistic, I do think that he meant everything he wrote in this book very, very sincerely. Yeah. So last week, we mentioned the movie American Beauty, Uh, uh, which came out in 1999. It was Hollywood's depiction of this deep malaise that seemed to have settled on Clinton-era America. People were bored, I guess. (laughs) Their lives were dissatisfying, purposeless devoid of true love or true meaning. They were chasing after the wind, to quote the writer of Ecclesiastes and also Kansas. (laughs) Yes, this particular despair seems to cycle through human history over the ages. Yeah, I I think it was just peak contentment, like post-war contentment Mm -hmm. America. Mm -hmm. And when you have the rest of those Maslow's hierarchy of needs met, you start wondering like, what do I do now? What's my reason for being or for existence when you're not actually trying to like figure out a way to send your kids to college or wherever. And Christians really, really latched onto this really hard. Mm -hmm. Even as a 15-year-old, my youth was talking about purpose and meaning. And Mm -hmm. that was just really not on my radar at all at the time as a teenager. But it was a big deal. And for Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Life, the beginning of his point anyway is like, just get over yourself. This is not Uh about you. Sort of. But (laughs) the book aims to call people to this purpose that's greater than themselves. But also... And this is probably where it got to be really brilliant. For Warren, it was a purpose greater than yourself, but also God has created you uniquely and that you have this unique purpose that's just for you, that only you can fulfill, that God has given to you to accomplish in this lifetime. You are the center of your own universe, but you're also supposed to get entirely get over yourself. These things can both yes. be true. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> I'm seeing why maybe I don't remember a lot of this book. <laughs> anyway, this book like immediately takes off like wildfire. And I think this is this is huge. It goes well beyond the normal Christian book audience, which at that time was seen as just like so important for Christians. Like if we can mm-hmm. just get out of our little bubble and be mainstream, then we'll really be having an impact for God. Mm-hmm. So this turns Rick Warren into a celebrity. He's on talk shows. And I remember him being on like magazine covers. Mm-hmm. He's meeting with politicians. He gave the invocation for Barack Obama's. Yeah, that was crazy. For the Democratic president. The Democratic ceremony. president. That was really, really crazy. He was pretty famously 
bipartisan, even though it was very yeah. clear that he was like, you know, conservative. That was the seeker sensitive, apolitical yeah. thing. I think he hosted Obama and McCain at Saddleback. Mm-hmm. That's right, for a debate. That's how big his influence was. Yeah, there is no pastor who could do that today or uh-uh. would even want to, would have any interest in doing that today for Trump and Biden, for the presumptive nominees. Mm-hmm. He's named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2005. In 2006, Newsweek calls him, (laughs) this is great, 15 people who make America great. (laughs) (laughs) He was America's pastor for a while. But I do think, as we kind of started to allude to, it's worth taking a look at like Rick Warren's context where he actually was a pastor, the place uh-huh. and how that impacted his church and the book that he wrote. So he's pastor in Lake Forest, California in the OC. Can we get the uh, opening chords to California? <laughs> it's a red dot in a sea of blue. Well, yeah, it's a very wealthy red dot in a sea of blue. Very wealthy and very white. Around the time that this book comes out, Lake Forest was 76% white, and the median income for a family in Lake Forest at the time was $96,000. That is nearly twice the average for the rest of America. Really, the book kind of grew out of a book he wrote in 1995 for his church or about his church and the work that he'd been doing there that was called Purpose Driven Church. Now, at its very best, Purpose Driven Life is Warren's attempt to shake Christians out of a selfish life, driven by wealth and material success and consumerism, even if it does attempt to do this in a language familiar to those steeped in such pursuits. It's this sort of like self-help corporate speak that is probably very familiar to anybody who has read self-help books before. Yeah, and I think, obviously, in retrospect... It does assume a lot of what I would say is privilege and a lot of Mm -hmm. agency on the part of readers that they can like really own part of their life to find their purpose and live into it. Even though I think he tries at times to like back away from that and be like your circumstances can be whatever and you can still find your purpose. His audience, I think he assumes and knows is like an audience with privilege and money. They've fulfilled those bottom parts of the pyramid of needs, and they're not worried about where their next meal is going to come from or Mm -hmm. the roof over their heads, or certainly not like, how do I get a job if I've been incarcerated or something like that? We're assuming a lot of agency. Yes. So what does this book actually say? And are we uh, allowed to like any of it still? That and more after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. From Anglicans to Zoroastians, RNS has religion covered A to Z. And if you like what we're doing at Save by the City or here on Apocryphon, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward getting the word out about the show. And if you have some suggestions for books you'd like to see us cover, we would really love to hear them. Thanks to Nick R. for sending a few ideas our way this week. We will get to them, you know, just the way that love does. Hit us up on social media. (laughs) Except definitely not on X, not on TikTok. Threads, Instagram, Blue Sky, maybe even Facebook. Yeah, sure. Facebook. Or you can also, and probably best of all, email us at sbtcpodcast, sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We would love to hear from you. 
When you hear the word land, what images come to mind? Your local garden, the environment, Mother Earth, 40 acres and a mule. What if I told you that our thoughts about land are rooted in religion? And those religious ideas have transformed American politics. This is Complexified, a podcast for the religiously curious and politically frustrated. In this season of Complexified, we will unearth the different and often unexamined beliefs about land in search of new paths toward a common good. I'm your host, Amanda Henderson, coming to you from the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Iliff School of Theology and in partnership with Religion News Service. Follow Complexified on your favorite podcast app. Let's take a look inside Purpose Driven Life. This is a book that is set up as a 40-day devotional. So 40 days, six weeks of reading. The first week is an overview. It's titled, What on Earth Am I Here For? The following five weeks are the purposes. The first week spends a lot of time talking about how our lives are not our own and are not about us. And it's like very clearly meant to counter this predominant consumerist money and success driven life. This is something that I think Christians were like really interested in attacking at the time. And I actually mm-hmm. think justifiably, rightfully so. This was a good thing. It was almost part of the culture war, but it'd be one of those Christian culture war things that I actually think they were right to go after. Yeah. Nobody goes after that anymore. It's kind of fallen by the wayside, but consumerism was and remains a major issue in America. And the idea of money as a sign of success and being wealthy, meaning that you're not just like financially rich, but also probably have good character and have a good work ethic and have a lot of wisdom to offer. These things are really plaguing America. And I think Rick Warren was very right. And the church at large really did talk about this a lot at the time Mm -hmm. as being something that we needed to learn how to get over. To some degree, you knew that's what you were going to hear on a Sunday. Yeah, for sure. And you were going to be challenged about spending all of your time focused on work or being too busy or being too success driven. You know, you should be a better dad. You should be a better neighbor. You should care about things beyond your paycheck and your time card. I guess I hadn't thought about that in a while, that that was fairly common at the time and is not, at least not in that circle of Christianity, of evangelicalism. I don't feel like that's like the drumbeat anymore. It seemed like it was something that they really tried to astroturf as a major cause celebre of Christianity. It's not really about the money and it's important not to love money too much, mm-hmm. but nobody was trying to make themselves poor or what <laughs> they mostly were just like, don't worry, I'm not too attached to my money. Mm-hmm. I like having it, but it's not my reason for existing. My reason for existing is Jesus, Yeah, which is, I guess is better than nothing. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but it doesn't really maybe. address the the core issue they kind of maybe accidentally backed into this correct critique of American culture that became very central to the church in the 90s. And I think that Purpose Driven Life, you know, really addressed it, called it out. But yeah, it wasn't like Shane Claiborne. It's not like Rick Warren was saying, sell everything and wear 
brown paper bags for pants. <laughs> yeah, because Shane's book, which came a little later, actually demanded real sacrifice yeah. and like called Christians to live lives closer to the marginalized and to the impoverished, mm-hmm. which to my recollection was not part of the challenge of purpose-driven life. No, I think it was just don't care too much about this. Don't dedicate uh-huh. too much of your life to it, but also be a really good worker and you know, uh-huh. be ethical and treat your coworkers well and share the love of Jesus with your coworkers and that kind of thing. You know, like your God-given purpose could easily be integrated with your job and your career and the rich suburb that you live in. And I do think that idea about like just having the right attitude about money, which is such a vague, nebulous thing you can really assure the rich people in your congregation that they are being good Christians mm-hmm. as long as they don't love money too much, which there's no way to test if you're loving money too much or not, right? There's <laughs> right. no way you can actually decide whether or not you love money other than mm-hmm. what would happen if you woke up tomorrow and it was all gone, which would actually terrify any one of us. Yes, guilty. But like Shane Claiborne really did say, we should probably have less money. Like mm-hmm. the average American doesn't need as much money as they have. They should be giving more of it away. And it seems like purpose-driven life was more, we shouldn't care about money as much as we do. But if you happen to continue to making a lot of money, even while not caring about it, then that's not a problem. Yeah. And then do something good with it. Yeah. Maybe God has called you to be rich. Right. And you can use all that money to help fund missions or support mm-hmm. good causes, which he certainly has done with a lot of his money. Mm-hmm. With his peace plan. I think a lot of people who are associated with him have probably done the same thing. Mm-hmm. I went to Saddleback in 2006. Oh, I've never been. Yeah, it's huge. It's also gorgeous. Uh-huh. There's like these cliffs that drop off into the ocean right there and it's beautiful. It's like the most beautiful part of the whole country. It's yeah, incredible. it's incredible. I need God to call me there. <laughs> I think that's my purpose. This is when I was working at Christianity Today and I was, I can't remember, I was working on something that had to do with small groups and this was the era of small groups. Yeah. Every church you had, you were in a small group, you were doing some kind of Bible study, you were probably doing purpose-driven life together in your small group. And I think there was even, you know, he did do marketing well. There was a uh, purpose-driven small group book that came out or curriculum that came out. Oh, that's great. Uh, so I do remember going to visit and the, you know, just the folks that were there and the, the many SUVs in the parking lot. And I went to a small group, you know, just as sort of like a, a guest and it was in such a gorgeous home. <laughs> and it did, it was a weird, it was a weird paradox, you know? And that's just something that I think will always be a little bit strange for anybody who gets involved in those evangelical circles is Mm -hmm. that there are people who are oftentimes very nice. Oh, yeah. And like do probably give a lot of money to charitable and praiseworthy causes and uh, oftentimes even will volunteer like Mm -hmm. I think that the world will probably never know how much Saddleback has done for the local community in terms of Mm -hmm. the things that it has done to help the very small homeless population around there, but it does exist. And Mm -hmm. uh, even some of it's like, I think the things that it's done for like poverty alleviation. And certainly there are people who would say this book gave them a reason to live when they didn't know whether or not they'd have any. And 
I remember hearing those stories come out all the time when this book was huge. Mm-hmm. Somebody would be at you know the end of their rope and they came across this book, which were everywhere. Mm-hmm. They were as common as bricks. Yep. You could just walk outside and they would, there'd be stacks of them <laughs> there in the street, uh, on the street corners and pick one up. And I think it really did help people. Yeah. I think it probably saved lives. Yeah, absolutely. To that end, the end of day one in the book, I think kind of conveniently for us offers a really succinct summary of where the book's going, what it's about. So he offers three points as a roadmap. Number one, you discover your identity and purpose through a relationship with Jesus Christ. No surprises. No, that sounds Um, good. Number two, God was thinking of you long before you ever thought about him. His purpose for your life predates your conception. He planned it before you existed without your input. You may choose your career, your spouse, your hobbies, many other parts of your life, but you don't get to choose your purpose. There's so much happening there. Like, no! On both a cosmic level and both uh, um, on a very experiential. Thanks a lot, God. <laughs> Thanks, God. There's <laughs> unknown purpose I don't get to choose that I have to discover by reading Purpose Driven Life. All right. But that's like not even true, right? Like, I don't think choose so. your career. Like, I don't know that most people get to really choose their career. Most of us kind of fell into the jobs that we have through a mix of accident and what was available to us and uh, what our abilities were. Yeah. And your hobbies, like if I had any, if I could hoop at all, maybe my hobbies would be basketball, but God did not give me that either. So both my purpose and my lack of ability on the basketball court are the two things God did not give me the ability to choose. I'm sorry. I've made peace with it. It's all right. I mean, I have to think that some of these things like drive us toward our purpose, right? That's probably true. Number three, the purpose of your life fits into a much larger cosmic purpose that God has designed for eternity. Okay. So you're a one player in the grand opera. All Mm -hmm. right. I'm down with that. Sure. Each daily reading ends with this extremely 90s and early aughts little box on the page. And inside of each of these boxes is one, a point to ponder, two, a verse to remember. Oh man, I do remember this now. Like this is all (laughs) flooding back to me as I'm reading this. (laughs) And three, a question to consider. An example from somewhere deep in the middle of the book. All right, point to ponder for this day. Every temptation is an opportunity to do good. The verse to remember, God blesses the people who patiently endure testing. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. James 1.12. The question to consider, what Christ-like character quality can I develop by defeating the most common temptation I face? Tyler, what's your answer? Uh, The temptation I face every day is to go up to every kid I see shooting hoops in his front yard and just really show them what's what. (laughs) And the Christ-like quality I develop by resisting that temptation every time is being a person of a sort of quiet, I know how how much skill I have on the court. Mm -hmm. I don't need to show. And I think Jesus probably felt the same way. Like a humility, a gracious humility. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. You got it. (laughs) Great. All right. So let's discuss these five purposes that Warren says in the book are clearly revealed for our lives through the Bible. Okay. And this is total. Every single person, no matter who you are, these five things are going to apply to your life. Yes. And they're in the Bible. Okay. Okay. I can't argue with that. 
Purpose one is you were planned for God's pleasure. These have like little daily devotion titles like becoming best friends with God and when God seems distant. So this is the the first and very nice sounding purpose is that God created you because he wanted to create you. Like you, you genuinely bring joy to God. Yeah, I think in this section there was like a lot of metaphors around God as artist you as creation, wouldn't a painter give a lot of thought and love and care to each person she puts in a painting? That's nice. Yeah, it is nice. Makes everybody feel good. But it also, there's like a little bit of obligation because you're supposed to want to be friends with God. So God did all this for you. What have you done for him? (laughs) Are you enjoying God back? Yeah. So where are you at? All right. That makes sense. Purpose two, you were formed for God's family. Daily devotional titles here, uh, a, a place to belong, experiencing life together, and cultivating community and restoring broken fellowship. This seems fairly substantive. Mm-hmm. Community was also a bit a really buzzy word at this time. Like people love community. We mm-hmm. had Willow Creek in Chicago that was championing these small groups, which are mm-hmm. like churches are getting big, but you can still have these little groups that right. are your, these are going to be your people, your ride or dies. Right. I don't have any objection to that. This might be my favorite of them. And I do think this was part of these mega churches that were seeker sensitive. Big part of that was like, you can be anonymous if you want, but that's not the goal. Uh The goal is ultimately that you get plugged in so that you can do life together with your small group. And this is as right for the bowling alone thing has gotten some traction. Like Americans are getting lonelier. Mm -hmm. There's a loneliness epidemic, which has only gotten more poignant Mm -hmm. and pointed in the years since then. And churches are well established to tackle this issue. Uh, You have a built-in community there. Purpose three, you were created to become like Christ. Some of the daily devotion titles here, transformed by truth, transformed by trouble, growing through temptation. I'm a little nervous about this one. I'm trepidatious around the whole becoming like Jesus line of reasoning from this era. Yes. There's a page in this chapter. The one that I would say is the most problematic, still reading back on it. Oh. Just think about like the Twitter wars of the last few years as you you contemplate this passage. He talks about how in the official family tree of Jesus, there are four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. He goes on to say... Tamar seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was not even Jewish and broke the law by marrying a Jewish man. Bathsheba committed adultery with David, which resulted in her husband's murder. These were not exactly sterling (laughs) reputations, but God brought good out of bad. Wow. (laughs) Which resulted in her husband's murder. If only Bathsheba had had the wisdom to not do that, then maybe Uriah would still be with us to this day. Yeah. And Tamar apparently just seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant. There was no context there. There was no background. There was no betrayal of her. Yeah. I was very much like blame the women. That that was also very common. Mm -hmm. Like people love pointing out that all the women named in this have like, in their minds, these sordid reputations. Yes. And look, God can use anybody, even somebody as disgusting as these perverted sex harlots. Yes. <laughs> and when you look into these stories, they were almost to a person victims of like yeah. manipulation or in some cases sexual violence. Uh, but that didn't really get a lot of airtime. No. Christian men weren't trying to have those conversations then or now. The other line in here that, <laughs> okay, <laughs> the same page. We are like jewels shaped with the hammer and chisel of adversity. If a jeweler's hammer isn't strong enough to chip off our rough edges, God will use a sledgehammer. 
If we're really stubborn, he uses a jackhammer. He will use whatever it takes. God's going to keep punching you in the face until you wake up and pay attention. One possible explanation for why things are so hard in your life is you're being so stubborn and you just won't listen. And that's like the really insidious place it goes. Mm -hmm. And even if Warren would maybe couch that differently, Mm -hmm. this is obviously used by other people to mean that and to keep people under control in ways that manipulate them out of their agency and sometimes even their like financial resources. Right. All right. Purpose four, you were shaped for serving God. And this one's got some daily devotion titles, like understanding your shape. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. that. I think it's for dresses, like pear shape. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm snowed in right now. I can't go to the gym as much as I'd like to. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, not understanding my shape super well. <laughs> uh, using what God gave you and accepting your assignment. Okay. On the one hand, it's like you're created for this great cosmic purpose. But remember, you don't really get to pick what that is. Like you you don't have a lot of say in it. No. And it's all in service to God. You are a servant. Right, right. So bloom where you're planted and just kind of like shut up and get ready to do the work. Right. Glamorous or not. Obviously, this has been used a lot of times to keep women in line in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, Sometimes to keep sexual minorities in line as well. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you just weren't called to get married or to be right. a leader. Now, I should say that Rick Warren in the year since then has actually faced real consequences for ordaining women in his church. So I do not think he would say that about women necessarily, but those sorts of lines are used. Yeah. Purpose five, as we've said, this is not so far off from Eldridge. You were made for a mission with some uh, daily devotional titles like sharing your life message, balancing your life, and living with purpose. So that's just kind of like a wrap up. Mm-hmm. What's the whole point of the book is that your life has a purpose. And he's Southern Baptist. So there's some, some of the mission is evangelizing, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Remember when people cared about that? <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about the impact. We've talked about the message. Like we said, we weren't sure about whether to include this mm-hmm. because it really was not exactly our demographic. I felt very downstream of this, but even if it wasn't necessarily formative for my faith, it had a huge impact on the culture that me and your spiritual journey developed in. Yeah. I don't remember it impacting me, but when I was rereading some of it for this podcast, there were some lines that I read that I was like, ugh. (laughs) I wanted to both throw up and it like pierced my heart because it felt so much like those were the things that drove me as a Christian Uh, and just would have like gave me all of this angst for God, you know? Uh Here's a couple of them. Okay. The greatest tragedy is not death, but life without purpose. Uh Purpose always produces passion. On the other hand, passion dissipates when you lack purpose. The greatest heroes of faith are not those who achieve prosperity, success, or power, but who treat life as a temporary assignment, expecting their promised reward in heaven. That's so difficult because it does feel like you're just kind of switching one prosperity gospel for another. There's still this idea of a a carrot on a stick Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's just after you die. Yeah. And it's after you die and it's not money, which is good. Like I think maybe it's an improvement, but I feel like anytime you start saying the reason you should become a Christian is for this reward, I don't like the idea of incentivizing somebody's spiritual journey 
that still feels very opportunistic to me, mm-hmm. whatever the intention of it actually was. Well, and I have to say, in a weird way, it says quit caring so much about money if you're rich, which you already are like, you're okay. You, you know, that's an easy yeah. thing to do. But if you don't have <laughs> yeah. a lot of money, it's really hard not to care about money. And right. I think it can be used as this way to make impoverished people feel like, oh, it's okay. Like I have eternity to sort of discount the real pain and suffering that people are going through on earth right now. Yeah. Because when you assume probably correctly in his case, that most of the people who read this book already have money under control, Mm -hmm. then you can tell them not to care about it. And they probably don't have to because they have passive income and Mm -hmm. when their parents are going to inherit a bunch of money. So uh, Mm -hmm. it'll all kind of work out, but it's not hard to see how this sort of conditioned American Christians to think of people who do not have a lot of money or who do struggle with real material issues in the world having to do with how much money they have, having to do with their race, having to do with their maybe incarceration status. When these people come say, hey, this isn't working for me, the idea is, well, you're just not doing what God told you to do. Mm -hmm. Or this life in pain is temporary. Like, well, I'm hungry today. So what do I do about that? That doesn't have to do with my purpose. That has to do with the fact that I I need food to eat and my my kids are hungry. Yeah, totally. There's another line. It says, don't settle for just achieving the good life because the good life is not enough. And I think that really drove me a lot at the time, like this idea of like, oh, of settling and that that would be really disappointing to God who created me for these amazing things, you know, and So I think that was another thing that wasn't unique to this book, but was very much in the water at the time. Just that pressure. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about this as a teenager at that time. You're already so confused and you're so stupid and you're making so many mistakes anyway. And then there's this transcendent significance Uh that's put on top of all of those things. It's a lot of pressure for a kid to live with. And part of the reason Purpose Driven Life takes off at that time is because it makes it sound pretty easy. Mm -hmm. He takes these things that do put a lot of pressure on a lot of people and do seem like they should give you like cosmic anxiety every waking moment of the day. But he breaks them up into digestible bite-sized pieces that aren't super offensive and that really Mm -hmm. do scratch the itch of, but God's on your side. Mm -hmm. He made you for a purpose. You've got this. God's got you. So it goes down a lot easier. What do you think of this book in retrospect? Where does it land now? I feel like in large part, the mainstream white evangelicalism of the country has moved away from this book. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of evangelical circles, I've seen winsomeness be used in a very derogatory oh, yeah. way. Like, well, you're just trying to be winsome. You're just trying to win over the culture. And I think a lot of people would say that this book falls into that category of trying to be winsome, where what is really needed today is we were way too seeker sensitive. Now we need to be almost seeker abrasive. Like mm-hmm. seekers need to know what they're signing up for mm-hmm. if they want to be a Christian. And I'd say to the point, they, they feel this so much that they eventually kicked Rick Warren out of yeah. the Southern Baptist Convention. Convention yeah. because they said, well, you're not part of the program anymore. We're mm-hmm. trying something different now. We're back to real hard, tough Christianity. And if you can't get with the program, then you're not with us. Apocryphon or apocryphal? Uh, I'm going to say apocryphal. 
forgettable. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Yes. Sorry, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) I do have love. I guess it did come across. I think sticking to his guns with ordaining women in Saddleback took a lot of guts. And I really respect him for it. And I think in doing that, he established himself in a small way as a part of a church, the church that I would rather be part of than one that I was like pretty happy to leave behind when the time came. Apocryphon is a project of Saved by the City and is a religion news service production. Senior producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham and Julia Windham. Chaz Russo put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Tyler Huckabee. California, California, California. California. here we go. (laughs) 